When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Talking to Change, a motivational interviewing podcast. My name is Sebastian Kaplan, and I am based in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, USA, and joined by my good friend, Glenn Hines from Derry, Northern Ireland. Hello, Glenn. Hey, Seb. How are you doing? Doing okay. We've been checking in with people, given the state of the world. It is June 13th today, at least here in North Carolina. Things are opening gradually, but uh, North Carolina is actually one of the small handful of states that uh, the country seems to have its eye on as far as not necessarily a second wave, but an increase in coronavirus mm. cases and hospitalizations. So I think there's a bit of a, a mixed feeling about where we are. How about you? We have continued to in our relaxation of the restrictions and there's a lot more going on. The shops have now opened while there are restrictions in them. There certainly is a feel that there's more of a what was the old normal about. And I suppose given the fact that we are talking about change, it's about understanding the mindset, the psychology of how we are experiencing this slow moving transition and our response to it. I would say that there's a lot more people being more willing to take the risk of not participating in social distancing, particularly with loved ones. You know, families are meeting up, friends are meeting up. My youngest daughter's 19 and... I would say that her cohort of friends, they have been meeting up, but I would say the social distancing is not necessarily being maintained the way it would have been before. I think the messaging we're getting from government is a bit more try and do your best, and that gives us a wee bit more leeway. There's the fear that probably was in the initial message has been removed, and people are a lot more flexible with how they're interpreting what it is we're being offered. And again, it's just being curious about that and, and recognizing as we witness ourselves and witness other people doing these things, this is human nature and there's lots we can learn by just paying attention and just trying to understand why is this happening the way it is and if we were to try and change it, what would we need to do differently in the way we communicate as we are here and understand motivational interviewing. Yeah, it seems to be an issue of sustainability, sustaining change. and Yeah. Certainly in the States, there's discussion of quarantine fatigue and, you know, how long can people expect to change their lives in such drastic ways, particularly when we live in areas that there isn't such an immediate threat, as in places like New York City, for instance, where they've been much more used to stricter regulations mm -hmm. or other countries like Italy, for instance. The issue of sustainability or change over a long period of time might be relevant in our discussion today. And so before we introduce our guest and introduce the topic, can you remind our audience the various ways that they can reach us on social media and other platforms? So on Facebook, it is Talking to Change. On Twitter, it's at Change Talking. On Instagram, it's Talking to Change Podcast. And for direct questions or contact with myself and Sebastian, it's podcast at glennhines.com. Thank you, Glenn. And again, invitation for 
all our audience to rate and review us and leave us feedback and send us any emails with suggested topics and questions. Uh, we read all of it and discuss each and every one of them. Really excited about today's episode. We'll be exploring the role of motivational interviewing in working with people who have a diagnosis of borderline personality disorder. And this is something that I've actually been really looking forward to for many, many months. For those who don't know, I work in a department of psychiatry and many of the people we take care of and certainly the psychiatry residents that I'm a part of training have to work with many people with this diagnosis. And it is a challenge. I'm looking forward to the discussion to sort of bring what MI can offer to working with this group of individuals. So without further ado, we'll introduce our guest for today, who is Florence Chanu. Thanks for joining us, Florence. And as always, if you could start with, just tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do, and also how did you get into MI? First of all, thank you very much, both of you, for inviting me. And um, because it's a topic that I, I really am really enthusiastic about. So yes, myself, I'm a psychiatrist based in Montreal. I'm an assistant professor at the University of Montreal. I'm trained in addictions. So I did a fellowship in addictions at McGill University. At the end of my residency program, I really noticed that every day we're struggling with our patients on motivational issues, on change. It's in every conversation with patients. And yet I didn't feel like I had really the skills to do a good job about that. And I noticed that when we feel powerless, we tend to use some not always very ethical techniques like uh, instinct, fear, or just letting go the patient, like, oh, he's going to come back when he's motivated. In the meantime, we don't do anything, that sort of thing. So obviously with substance abuse disorders, it's a big issue. But I would say in psychiatry, it's everywhere. We're promoting uh, lifestyle changes, adherence to treatment. All, the, all these are not that well followed with patients with the usual prescriptive methods. So I heard about a team that were using much interviewing, which was absolutely unknown in Quebec, even in addiction treatment uh, facilities. Because, I mean, I guess everyone knows that in Quebec, the main language is French, which already is a, is a language barrier to have uh, sometimes some novelty in psychotherapy or other things like that. And much better interviewing was first invented by English speakers. <laughs> so I guess that, that I'd explain there was a bit of a delay in knowing about motivational interviewing. And I was extremely lucky because my fellowship was, I guess, one of the best years of my life. I was with uh, Maurice Donchier, a um, renowned psychiatrist, and a scientist in alcohol research, also psychoanalyst mainly, and he discovered motivational interviewing like he was almost retired, and he got so enthusiastic about, and I was his first student, so I had really a privileged uh, relationship with, with Maurice um, Dongier uh, for the entire year and a half of my fellowship. And we were studying motivational interviewing efficacy, and especially with driving while intoxicated the patient and those who didn't respond to the usual 
remediation measures. So really the hardcore recidivists, uh, those uh, people think that nothing can change them and especially not a 20 to 30 minute intervention once. So we were studying that and also I was uh, I had another mentor, Thomas Gordon Brown, the head of the addiction research program at the Douglas Hospital, McGill University, which is the first one who really implemented the motivational interviewing in, in Quebec. So I had that great experience, but I was already hired by the hospital. In fact, it's the hospital where I'm still working, Hospital uh, en Santé Mentale Albert Prévost, to treat personality disorder patients. So I was an addiction psychiatrist, but working with the future of working with personality disorder patients. That's what I did uh, all along. I, in many hospitals, a few hospitals, a few settings, I also um, put together uh, integrated uh, treatment, outpatient and inpatient uh, treatment um, program for uh, concurrent disorders. I think in the United States, you call them dual disorders. And I'm trying to do that as well for personality disorder uh, back at the hospital on Santé Mentale Albert Prévost. And we also studied with Teresa Moyers. It was the release of the Mighty Manual. In fact, we had a copy before everyone else. <laughs> and to try to make a study of the validity of that scale. So that was a very, uh, very nice journey that I would say totally changed my identity and the way I relate with patients. And I mean every patient, because I'm also part-time working with other type of clientele in psychiatry, like psychotic disorders, mood disorders, but they all have in common that these patients that I see, they have addictive disorders as well. But I can see patients with personality disorders without an addiction disorder. And MI has been the most versatile and powerful skill and tool in my toolbox for my career. And I really don't know how my colleagues who don't have this skill are not all in burnout. Dealing with very complex problems, persons who are in need of a lot of care, we don't always have all we would like to have to offer them. And also we don't always know how we best behave with them. I guess it's the same experience for a lot of people who adopted motivational interviewing as a part of their practice. There's sometimes a, a nice fit with our personality, like and values, that when we value autonomy and the collaboration with the patient. I think that my work with personality disorders also prepared me a little bit for motivational interviewing in a way. These are common philosophy of treatment where we, the patient is really a partner, an equal partner in expertise, and that we are not going to do things to them they don't want to do. When you were at the earlier part of your journey, where you had, when you were studying and where you were just about to go into practice, that you were already noticing a discrepancy within yourself about how people were being treated in the services that you were involved with and addictions. And it seems like it was very fortuitous that you found yourself in the company of two very enthusiastic leaders who themselves were just discovering motivation. And you became part of that, that 
circle where the three of you went off and really explored this thing called motivational interviewing and it immediately began to crystallize for you that you know there was something in this not just for addictions work but really quite significantly in the new path that you were following which was the support and treatment of people with uh, personality disorders and I wonder if you could maybe just give us some insight into what personality disorder is and then we can explore more specific uses of motivation in the treatment of. I think it's particularly relevant because it has a special place also in psychiatry or in psychiatric manuals, the personality disorders. Uh, first of all, what is a personality disorder? Like a personality is a, it's a general set of characteristics how we behave and uh, how we think and how we also react emotionally to the world around us. And we tend to have some sets, some patterns, and uh, like everyone has, we all have a personality and it comes with strengths and it comes with areas where it's a, a little bit more difficult. It reaches the level of a disorder when really it impairs our functioning or it leads to a lot of suffering. And suffering, typically with personality disorders, it's not always the patient who is suffering the most. Sometimes it's the significant others who are relating to that person who might be suffering as well. Borderline personality disorder is uh, the, the main characteristic, it's instability. So it's instability in behaviors, in mood or emotions in thoughts and in relationships. So it's, it's a pattern of being quite intense and in, unstable in all these four domains. So that's the, pretty much the definition, I would say, of borderline personality disorder. But then different theory posits a certain importance more on this or that aspect, but this is the general definition we agree on. Right. And whether it's personalities, broadly speaking, or even with the topic that we'll be discussing today, which is borderline personality disorder, there's a lot more depth we can go into about the defining features and characteristics and things of that nature. So if any of our audience members are unfamiliar with these terms, just know that we don't have the time to go into them in such rich detail and just to do some learning on your own to discover that. So going back to your early story, one of the things that struck me was your comment about MI and what has sort of puzzled you about how the your colleagues who don't practice motivational interviewing, how they're not burnt out. I think it's a, a useful connection point to some of the qualities of people who are struggling with borderline personality disorder, right? Because that's certainly a uh, quite a risk factor, I suppose, for providers who are working often with people who are struggling in these areas. Maybe you can talk a little bit about that. It's often um, clientele that is feared and even avoided by therapists or counselors in general. Maybe it's because of the intensity of the emotional experience and one particular aspect of borderline and personality disorder is that they, they have trouble controlling anger. Maybe sometimes the anger is directed towards the therapist as well. So they might be a little bit frightening. 
I would say also that one thing that might be difficult in trying to help these patients is that if we are in a helping profession is because we, we want to help, we want to be useful to the patient, and we tend to have a lot of things that we think are good to offer. So we really want to fix problems. And with borderline personality disorder, I would say everyone has that psychological reactance when somebody wants to tell you to do something. But my impression as a, as a, as a therapist is that with borderline personality disorder, this uh, psychological reactance is more obvious. It's maybe faster to manifest itself in the relationship and it might be more intense. So I think they are, in fact, the best teachers of motivational interviewing ever because you have the immediate feedback on what you're doing, if it's good or if it's bad. But it's not abnormal psychology. They're going to react exactly as I would react, but just maybe more intensely and maybe faster. What would be useful for us to understand then is people who may come into contact with individuals with borderline personality disorder, or even just to help people understand what it is that people are experiencing when they have a diagnosis of borderline personality disorder. It's not that there's something uniquely different about them in the sense of what you're saying is the reactions they're having are normal human reactions. It's just the presentation that's different. And it sounds like in some ways that one of the challenge, challenges for us as care providers is to more fully understand the condition the client is experiencing and that their reactions to us is feedback to their experience of us. And, and that is so important for any practitioner, but particularly for us when we're exploring motivation interviewing, that our task is to understand this client, our task is to, to engage and to support the client through their own journey. And that instinct that you're describing to try and fix, we refer to as the writing reflex, that because we want to be helpful, we think we should just provide answers. But it's exaggerated. The client's response to that is exaggerated because of the personality disorder. And it sounds like in some ways then that without fully understanding that, that that might explain why there are practitioners who do not look forward to meeting a client of this type. I suppose the, the boundaries of the relationship are very different from inverted commas, other normal psychiatric conditions or addiction presentations. A normal person with an addiction, and we can relate to the person, what this is, is the person that we're meeting, their presentation is itself different because of the condition. And the challenge for us then as practitioners is to align ourselves with that. And it sounds like we often use the metaphor of dancing here. It's, it sounds like it's recognizing this is a different dance. When you work with someone with a borderline personality disorder, it's a completely different dance than you're doing with someone else. And there's work for you as a practitioner. And it sounds like for you, when you learned motivational interviewing, it helped you dance much more fluidly and in a way that allowed you to do what you wanted to do, which was to be helpful, but in a way that the client and patient seemed to respond to. Absolutely. I would say the dance with borderline personality disorder is much more like the dance you would have with anybody in your life, your normal life, and not with a psychiatric patient. So that's the big difference, that you're treating the other as really a fully capable person to take decisions and their choices, even though sometimes it, it doesn't sound like it's the best option available, but 
to really respect fully their autonomy in that. Because also, I, I would say that very often borderline personality disorder patients, they tend to have a very low self-esteem and a very low self-efficacy feeling so that they're going to make us believe that they're incapable of managing their lives. And if we think we, we believe this and we forget about their potential and their capacities, that's where we get in trouble and, and we can be harmful to the patients. I think that's why also because they let us feel powerless sometimes. So we really feel that urge that you named as writing reflex. I totally agree with that. We feel that urge to fix them because they look like they're really a mess. And I am here. I want to save them. And motivational interviewing offers a much more comfortable way of being with them. We are a guide if they want a guide. <laughs> Maybe they don't even want a guide when they're meeting you that day. Maybe they just want to talk about this or that and they don't want anything else. Maybe you can help them make some changes if they want to make some, but uh, you really have to fully respect their autonomy and also believe in their potential. So maybe to go back to the definition of borderline personality disorder, when I present this to the patient and uh, oftentimes it's with their family or a significant other with them in the meeting, we also talk about the other side, this, the one that is not in manuals, the, the other side of borderline personality disorder, because all personalities, unlike schizophrenia or bipolar disorder, we all have two sides. We have strengths and we have things that are more difficult. So a person who are, is perfectionistic is often doing a great job detailed it's perfect but slow and so they have the we have the two sides and with BPD it, it tends to be creativity they can think out of the box a lot of them have a lot of energy much more than me which can get them in trouble but if they harness that energy they can do great things there's a lot of very high functioning people with BPD and one of the most famous one is Linehan the Marshall Anningham, which is a known researcher on borderline personality disorder. They can be very caring, very generous, altruistic, because they have this sensitivity that is very, like, at skin level. But if they can give that back to others, what the suffering they have, they, they, they suffered, so that they, they can be very generous. And they tend to be also very involved in social justice, that sort of thing. So I also present this other side to them. And I think it fits with MI too, because we want to work with the strength. We want to put the light on them. And we're not there to fix them at all. We just want them to be more aware that they have these strengths and use them more. The capacity you have to view patients with this condition from the standpoint of their strengths is so evident in these early moments of our conversation today. You, you described them as the best possible teacher of motivational interviewing. You made sure that you view them as just people like anybody else, as opposed to a psychiatric patient. And even just now, all this lengthy list 
of strengths that you've witnessed in people with this condition that you are sure to include in any conversation you're having with, with these patients and their families just really speaks to, I imagine, a really intentional effort on your part to keep those strengths front and center, which for those who have been listening to our podcast or maybe have been learning about MI separate from us, you can imagine is quite consistent with the motivational interviewing spirit. Maybe you can speak a little bit to the, the spirit of MI and how you feel like it's guided your work thus far. You're totally right, Sebastian. I think that acceptance eh, is uh, one key element of uh, motivational interviewing spirit. And to accept that uh, a BPD patient is a BPD patient, they, they have these characteristics, and that includes not taking it personal. If they're reacting very rapidly to what you said, like, of course, it's in a way, it's personal because you triggered that reaction, but it's not personal because they are typically reacting this way as well. So it's not like you can exclude yourself of the relationship, but still the spirit of accepting that they are who they are. Like I had a mentor on personality disorder who said that we don't expect a cat to do something else than meow. <laughs> we don't expect a BPD patient to be just calm and not do what a BPD characteristic would lead them to do. So you have to accept that and also accept that they're doing the best they can do right now. And we're here to help them uh, get the best of them, which is also the evocation component of the spirit, to believe in their potential and that we are not essential. We're not essential for them to get better. They can do better, and that has been proven time and again in longitudinal studies that the natural course of BPD is spontaneous remission. So when we have this in mind, it's also, I'm saying it because when we are in front of an individual that is very in distress and disturbed at that moment, we tend to forget that we're not essential and they have all that they need to get better. But maybe we can help to facilitate this and make it easier or faster. That's how I see my own role. Also, again, for the vocation part of motivational interviewing, just the fact that somebody would clarify his values, what do they want in life? what is important to them and help them get there, I think it's essential, especially with these type of clients because they are from one crisis to the other and they're always in the short term and they forget about the long-term perspective and just to evoke that, help them evoke that and think about it, that can be, I think, therapeutic in itself. I think that what I said earlier also speaks about the collaboration spirit. Like we're two equals with two different expertise. And if we can help as a guide, then that's great. And I think it's more respectful. It's more empowering of the patients, that type of uh, relationship. And obviously compassion to really believe that they're suffering. I've seen some colleagues that I think it's a defensive reaction 
at some point they think that they're manipulative, they're, really, they're not that suffering, because when they see them, it seems like they're in the deepest depression that evening, and the next day they're singing and they're all well, and, but it's the nature of the disorder. It's rapidly changing, but it doesn't mean that when they are suffering, it's less suffering. So the compassion helps to relate to that and yeah, try to be helpful. And what strikes me is just how sophisticated the practitioner has to be to have this awareness and to be able to navigate the relationship with an individual who's presenting with borderline personality disorder because of the intensity of the, the client's experience and and the difference in which they're doing it and just the humility in which you describe your understanding and the, and the space that, that I imagine that must create for an individual who, because of their different presentation, their experience of the world probably is quite conf- confrontative and they become accustomed to being confronted from a very early age. And then they come across a practitioner like you who is interested, curious and affirming and very significantly not taking their behavior personally and remaining curious with their experience and as you said at the beginning being willing to learn about your practice from their experience of you treating them and being willing to make adaptations so that their experience improves because that's what you're driven by a desire to be helpful and if there is something you you can do to improve that you're willing to do that for and with them maybe just describe some of your own experiences of working with people with borderline personality disorder and what they describe or if what it is you notice when they're with you that just confirms that ama is the way forward for you as a practitioner to support the people you want to help first of all i noticed that while i've been working with APD patients with or without addictive disorders for 15 years and a little bit more now, I have very, very, very few complaints. I had total of three complaints, but one was not a BPD patient. He was a psychotic patient. And the two others, the complaint didn't stick because they were probably made under the use of a substance, but it was not intelligible enough <laughs> that we could make a sense of it. But I would say even they, if they were valid, the two complaints, and I'm dealing with hundreds of individuals a year, more than 15 years, and we know that these patients, they make more complaints in general. They are experts to really see everything that is not right in the system and are our failures. They're very... Uh, failures detectors in our system is certainly not failure proof, not at all. So I think that the working alliance I can make with these patients has proven me that MI is certainly very helpful. And also, I I mean, I don't have doors, the slamming doors of my office. If I'm not the right person to help them at the moment, we we live in good terms in general. It's really extremely exceptional that I have a patient that is uh, leaving the hospital in a way that is really unsatisfied and really angry. So like just the emotion regulation that is better in the uh, interview with them, I think that it relates to the powerful use of uh, the skills in MI that can be very, uh, very helpful. 
And also, I think we discussed earlier um, in the previous conversation about the fear that maybe sometimes these individuals can be very suicidal or dangerous. And really, I don't know, with using in my, I cannot compare exactly with what it would do without it, but I would say it's not more than once or twice a year that we have to bring a patient to the emergency room after an interview. And usually we do it, I always do it in agreement with the patient. I don't have to force them. Like we agree that in the moment they need more care, but that's a very rare occurrence once or twice a year. I feel like we have a very respectful relationship that suits me. <laughs> and I think uh, they like it too, <laughs> in general. So these are some clues. And also, what is really helpful, I think, with the MI is that we can explore, safely explore, some very difficult behaviors that can be scary, like uh, self-harm, for instance. I did motivational interviews for self-harm, and I have one patient in particular in mind. She was even referred from another territory because her psychiatrist was just out of ideas to help her. She was using self-harm so much, like I mean, many times a day, like she was anemic to a point where she was not even white, she was green. And it was so automatic, it's such a reflex that she was not even aware of an emotion or a thought that would trigger the behavior. And so I tried to, with the motivational interviewing spirit and techniques to explore that behavior. And it, it led to very rich conversation about what was important to her in the end. And she was not afraid of dying. She was not afraid of having a complication. But she wanted to be more present for her children. She wanted to have more energy to play with them. And she felt like, this behavior was not letting her do that. And I don't think that healed her completely, but I was certainly the start to change. It was the start of a path to improve and get better. And it was not because she wanted to be healthy. Often in the healthcare profession, we think of health as a very high value and that our patients should have this high value. And motivational interviewing help us be more open to other values that may be the model for change for our patients. We keep hearing examples of how you see these patients. I just have to refer back. You describe them as experts at detecting failures. That's quite a reframe from how you might hear them as being demanding or complaining, but just Another example of a creative reframe on your part, interested in shifting a bit towards some of the specific skills. And actually, you, you sort of beat me to it with this example of this woman. And you can imagine how many practitioners might get really caught in this web of self-harm, in particular, this really extreme presentation, apparently. And amidst that, you had the wherewithal, and maybe it's not too much of a leap to say the courage to step back a bit from that alarming behavior, perhaps life-threatening behavior, to explore her values. That seems like one, one example of a shift that could, not that you're ignoring the self-harm 
behavior or that you would just say, well, we can't do anything about that. So might as well go to somewhere, something else. It's sort of shifting your focus to maybe approach it from a different perspective since clearly you're not the first person to explore this particular behavior with this person. So that's one thing. And, and if you wanted to say more about that, that'd be great. I also would be curious as to your thoughts on what seem to be almost like a special set of rules that practitioners have for when they're working with patients with BPD, right? There's the expectation that your boundaries have to be particularly firm and perhaps even more distant for fear that you might trigger something or get too close. I've certainly heard my colleagues describe it in many ways like that. And then it does pose a bit of a challenge with regards to MI because we are very much about developing empathic, supportive relationships through the use of skills like an affirmation, for instance, or obviously the steady use of reflective listening. To be more specific about my questions, I guess there's a broader question about other skills that you find helpful and maybe if you could speak a bit to these rules that practitioners have and how MI fits or perhaps doesn't fit. Maybe there's an adjustment that you make to some of the MI skills that you employ. Well, maybe it's because I was basically not that sophisticated at BPD. I described that I, I came to BPD clinical work with an addiction background, that I'm not that bound to these rules, but I, I had a good mentor that explained to me that boundaries are basically your own limits as a person, as a practitioner. And it's going to change probably from one person to the other. And it certainly for me has evolved with time. Like I think I'm much more comfortable with not as strict rules now that I, I used to be when I, when I began. So I, I needed these more strict rules, I guess, at the beginning to give me safety is to be comfortable enough as a therapist so that we can work at our full potential. I have limits. Like if I'm really too afraid of the safety of a patient or of a close relative around this patient, then I won't do a good job. So I need to respect that. These are very rare circumstances. It is to that point. Like when you have a good working alliance with a patient, you can be quite confident that you're going to have the information you need to make a decision, an informed decision about what is needed. Uh, if there's more security or safety than measures that need to be put in place. But I always say that in trainings or with my psychiatric residents in rotations that you have to respect your own limits and then if you need to have a colleague to help you with that have the great opportunity to work in a team so that is very useful for that type of clientele because it's nice to have a room to talk about some problems and think it out loud so that you're not yourself in a crisis mode with the patient because <laughs> it can be a little bit contagious but if you have the conversation before with another member of the team about this patient you can have options in your head already then you're less destabilized and you can be more calm and react more normally with the patient I don't believe in these really strict rules. The science has shown that any kind of structured treatment plan would probably be helpful, 
the structure can depend on the patient, can depend on the clinic. Obviously, my work setting sets some opportunities and limitations by itself. And I'm quite transparent with the patient about that from the beginning. They may need something. It doesn't mean that I, I have the possibility to give it to them. And when we say it and we don't let them think that we have when we can or we refuse them because they are them or it's not special to them, then they can really well understand that and don't insist but I think that sometimes we're afraid of their reaction. We make them believe things or not. We, we keep secrets in a way. And that, that doesn't lead to a good working alliance in, in the end. So boundaries, of course, you need to respect yourself. I'm not available 24-7. I need to have my self-care too. I need to have my life to be available. But I think it's true for any kind of patient that you see. It's just like good therapist hygiene, I guess. <laughs> but as for the skills, we, we had this previous conversation when I said that I don't think that there is any adaptation necessary to MI with this clientele, and I didn't see that. I, I know that I heard that therapists, they think that, oh, they don't really answer well to affirmations so they don't really uh, like complex reflection avoid that with the BPD patients I would say the total opposite these are very 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 helpful skills but I do agree that you need probably a higher level of mastery of these skills to be comfortable in using them with BPD patients since what I mentioned of being more intense in their reaction, maybe faster. I would say there's three areas of caution with the skills that you need to really be good in doing reflection or affirmation. The one that I see most frequently is to unintentionally minimize the intensity of their experience, which is invalidation which is like could share their inner experience with somebody that make them feel like it's inappropriate or it's not something they should have, they should not have reacted that way. I think that as therapists, we don't do that as openly, but we tend to do it a little bit. And that's, I would say it's in the line of the writing reflex again. Since they're dramatic in their presentation, Sometimes we think that it's our job to de-dramatize the situation, to soften it a little bit, or it should not have been that bad. Or maybe it's going to make them feel more in distress if I reflected the way that they said it to me. And my experience is the total opposite. If we don't match the intensity of what they're saying, of what is their experience, they're gonna just try to make you understand that no, you didn't get it. Let's say a patient says, last night when she left me alone, I was desperate. If you answer by you were sad, sad and desperate, really not the same level of intensity, or even if you say very sad, it doesn't match. So you have to say something like, at that moment, 
you couldn't imagine how you would do without that person. So you need to match. But I intentionally put some time reference points in my reflection. I guess it's to preserve hope. And it's also the, the emotion was very intense, but it was not forever. But when it's, the emotion is really intense, it's a new human, I think, behavior, we tend, we tend to think that it's going to go on forever. It's a way to put some limits to the experience, like it's not forever, but it was very intense. I agree with that. That is one area of caution. Be very, very cautious that not to minimize their, the intensity of, the, of their suffering. The only exception, I would say, that where I intentionally minimize or make, it's not really minimize, it's to put a distance between what they're saying and what I choose to reflect, is when it comes to their sense of confidence, self-efficacy, yeah, self-esteem, everything that is around that area, I treat it like crystal glass. I use terms, and that's a bit funny because I'm here in my second language talking about skillful use of language, <laughs> but I don't feel that skillful right now. But let's say I try, okay? So if a patient says something like, the other day, after this or that happened, I was so outraged, I thought I was about to hurt him. I almost lost it. You could use a reflection that is, okay, you almost lost control. That is technically okay. It's a reflection and it is a part of what the patient has said. We put the spotlight on when we're wrong. And the patient, they're coming with a lot of examples of that. They're not coming with all the things they did well. They come with the things that they feel bad about. So we can put unintentionally a lot of, of light on things that are not so self-efficient. <laughs> so a better way would be to change that and say something like the anger was so intense that you felt like you would lose control or that the same thing with the um, the feeling you felt anger very much instead of i was depressed i was you felt depressed you make a little distance you put a little distance and you can even go beyond and use affirmation like am i as this marvelous way of putting the emphasis on the good and the strength of the person and we we really want to have that frame with the patient so that same situation we could even go and say that that person that that anger was so so strong so so intense and yet they didn't lose control there's just so much richness in what you're saying i'm just conscious of how Significant, I imagine this will be for a lot of people who are listening, and I really appreciate the insights that you're offering. What strikes me is just how authentic the space that you're creating for people. 
how authentic you're being when you're being with people and that you have experimented over the years with the way you practice to the point where you're able to create a space where people on a spectrum i'm thinking about our podcast with david prescott who talked about working with sexual predators and with rory allett who talked about his work with people with a diagnosis of psychosis and if we think of the spectrum that they're individuals who are right out at the age of the spectrum and i guess that this is also where you inhabit and that ability to, to create a space where people can come and be themselves with you being yourself so that you together then can be curious, you know, what is it you want with your life? This is part of who you are. You currently have a diagnosis of borderline personality disorder. Now what? What do you want to do about that? What would be helpful for you? How do you want to maneuver and guide your way through life knowing that there are people out there who are going to react and have been reacting the way they are? But what would be helpful for you in the time that we have together? And just that willingness to go to the heights of their emotional state and be with them. And I guess that from being with you, that my sense would be that when I am being very heightened in my experience of myself, that my experience of being that with you is that you are, you are calm, you are centered, you are paying attention, that you're not being pulled out of shape by my behavior. And that must be very reassuring for the individual that they're not having now to protect you from themselves, which is an awful lot of what they're probably experiencing other people tell them, don't be shouting, don't be going on like that. You've got to be different for me to give you the attention. And you're going, you've got my attention. And I'm just curious what this means for you. And I guess that that's a lovely invitation for people who are listening, who are maybe moving into this world or currently working on mental health, that there's a journey that you have been on and there's a journey that we're all on as practitioners to become able to create a space where another human being can feel safe with us and that's work that we have to do for ourselves. And it sounds like you've been helped to get to the place where you are this capable and strong with the support of a number of mentors along the way. What would you be suggesting that people who are interested or are already working in this field, what is it they need to be looking for for people to support them to develop to the point where you are from other people, from their mentors or from supervisors? I guess that I had mentors who were very much into motivational interviewing spirit themselves <laughs> and uh, thinking about tom brown in, in particular it was really being in mind i always liked uh, bill miller saying about uh, what was the difference between learning and and being in my 10 years <laughs> i think it requires anything else than curiosity also humility like just to doubt I, I'm, I'm i'm maybe a, it's me i have a, i'm a person with lots of doubts <laughs> so i'm always trying to to see if i can do things a little better how i can be more useful but i have to say also uh, to to work in a team is probably very helpful to feel safe uh, as a therapist working with the severe end spectrum of that clientele so that i can if I'm in trouble, I can always knock on the door of somebody. So I guess not being as isolated as a practitioner is important when you, you're treating that kind of uh, patient. There's a community out there, like a motivational interviewing community that is uh, very welcoming and really, very uh, affirming too. Okay. <laughs> like you are with me today. So I thank you to that <laughs> for that. I'm conscious of the time and we'd often start to wind down at this point. However, I might 
suggest or hope that it's okay if we extend this a, a bit more. One thing I want to do is just summarize some of the skills that you've been mentioning throughout and which I think have been really important to hear. So one was the idea of exploring values as a way of responding to places where you might get stuck in treatment or if the person is presenting with sort of recurrent problems that they're having trouble getting out of to kind of shift focus a bit to what do they find important in their life or what are some of the drivers in their life that that could be a way to get back to that original topic. The idea of reflections, and, and you really emphasize the importance of matching the intensity of the person's experience, but also finding a way to provide some containment to that, which is a really wonderful nuance to reflection that I, I haven't really heard many people describe. It both honors their experience and genuinely provides some containment around it. Like you said, it's, it's not something that lasts forever or did last forever. It had a beginning and an end and it was, yes, it was very intense and that that's something that you reflect back. You described being rather transparent and straightforward about the limits of yourself as a person and of the clinic and the services that you provide. And you do that in a very matter of fact way upfront and that that's how it is for everyone that goes into the clinic. And it's nothing that needs to be sprung on them if they break a rule or that it's unique to them. It's just, it's just how you work and you find that helpful. Lastly, the, the use of an affirmation is not something that you shy away from, quite the contrary. And it may be similarly to a reflection. You try very hard to honor the distress that they're experiencing. And if you find a way or if it seems apparent that you're noticing that they've done something helpful for themselves, or if they've been trying to implement a particular skill that they've been working on, despite a difficulty, a problem, or, or the distress that they're experiencing in session, you name it for them. And that's not something that you uh, really shy away from. So those are, and maybe there were some others, but those seem to be the ones that really stood out for me. What I'd like to explore is the notion of stigma for people who have this diagnosis. And just hearing what your thoughts are about that. And I know at least in, in the work that I do in terms of working with psychiatry residents, I feel like very often there's a forgetfulness or a lack of appreciation about where this presentation and this sort of way of making life more tolerable, where does that come from? Oftentimes experiences of childhood abuse which we know based on research. But because the work can be quite challenging in the moment, it's really easy to lose sight of that or to lose sight of the broader context in which the person has come forward with. And then I guess maybe another way of thinking about it is these challenging behaviors, so to speak, that there's some need that the person is trying to meet. And there's a function to that. And that's also something that may not be readily apparent in the, in the heat of a moment. So I don't know how you see those, sort of that perspective taking on the part of the provider, if it might help with reducing stigma when working with these patients, but happy to hear your thoughts about it. It's very nice that you point out on this issue because there uh, has been some articles in the latest years that have pointed out that we tend to stigmatize these patients, this group of patients, even more than all other diagnosis in our healthcare system. When I read that, it was already there, but it made it just more obvious. When, I, when I'm a consultant for concurrent disorders on the inpatient wards, and 
there's a patient who has more challenging behaviors or is less cooperative, the tag of, oh, it's a personality disorder. And then you see that the clinician's eyes roll up. <laughs> I have to say that sometimes also the, the tag is not right. There's a lot of other causes to challenging behaviors. It can be a lot of other things than the personality disorder. But I would say that the most efficient way, at least for me, to be compassionate, because I think that the answer to stigma is compassion. And also, I have compassion for the therapist as well. I think that if you don't have the training that I had, you don't, you don't have motivational interviewing as a part of your tools, or if you didn't have the chance of working in a team or having the mentors I had or whatever else, then it can be quite natural to feel frustrated or powerless with these patients. So I have compassion for the therapists too, but to have compassion to these patients, I think the best antidote is to read their longitudinal story, their personal story. There's never uh, smoke without a fire. Like, uh, there's always causes. We know now that the, there's a bit of a predisposition, biologically speaking, being more reactive emotionally and all that, to have personality disorder. It also, you also need to have the difficult life events, the trauma experiences to develop the BPD. When facing very difficult or challenging uh, situation, clinical situation, when I have sometimes to remind myself of that, the story behind it, that helps me to first not take it as personal and also just see them as survivors. They survived the very adverse life situations and that shows up and that shows up in, in fact a lot by mistrust basic mistrust. That's also another way why motivational, I feel it is so um, helpful because we put a lot of effort in engaging and build a trusting relationship with the person. And um, yeah, I would say about stigma, it's um, the more we know about the disorder, how to deal with it, and the less we have to feel this way about it. And also the other antidote are the these studies of uh, spontaneous remission and prognosis that I think it's very encouraging. We feel as practitioner, we may feel less it's on our shoulder to do all the job that oh, we need to change them. So I think we can have a lighter approach, uh, more calm and uh, more modest. And I think that's a beautiful idea or thought to bring the podcast close to an end is just that concept of the way you can respond to witnessing someone else's stigma is to meet it with compassion. Equally important and just as beautiful was when you witness someone manifest stigma towards someone else, one of the ways to support them is with compassion. It's the compassion that is the healing agent and multiple individuals can experience something different because something new is happening in the conversation. There isn't a reaction from you. There is a response with kindness, with love, with understanding. This makes sense at some level. Why you're behaving like this makes sense, whether you are the patient or you are the practitioner. Your response to this situation makes perfect sense if I knew your life 
And for that reason, I honor your journey and I'm not going to make you feel guilty about how you're doing it. But I'm going to be curious about why it's happening for you and explore what was happening and why you might choose to do it slightly differently. So that's a beautiful invitation for all of us. Thank you, Florence. And at this stage, we normally ask our guests if there is anything currently going on for you that's catching your attention, whether that's motivational interviewing oriented or not. So I'm just wondering, where are you paying attention to at the moment? I'm currently very curious about uh, compassion approaches and self-compassion too. I think it uh, fits perfectly well with uh, motivational interviewing too. I think we all need that. And also, I mean, on the news, there's so much about stigma and all, and a lot of suffering. And also with the COVID-19 pandemic, I think we it has been a time where we want to reflect a little bit more on how we relate to each other and how we relate to ourselves and to do it like a, have a softer touch in general. So that's what is catching my attention. Opportunities to use that compassion that you possess for towards yourself and towards others is really uh, quite at the front of mind for you these days. And we also ask our guests as we come to a close, if anyone in the audience had questions for you or would like to contact you, if you'd be open to that, how might people reach you? Totally open to that. I will be very welcome. For me, the best way to reach me would be through my email address, which is my name, florence.chanu, C-H-A-N-U-T, at umontreal.com. Dot .ca so that's my email but i also have a twitter account under my name a facebook account under my name that's probably the the best way to reach me glenn b- before we say goodbye to florence just remind the the our audience how people can get in touch with us of course so on facebook it's talking to change on twitter it's at change talking on instagram it's talking to change podcast and by email, it's podcast at glennhines.com. And of course, if you're listening, whatever platform you're listening to this episode on, we would really appreciate it. As you switch off this episode, just go to the review, leave a comment. If there's a star section, give us a couple of stars. We really do appreciate the feedback and it allows other people who are interested in, in the podcast to be drawn based on your feedback rather than what it is we present. So that would be very helpful. Hopefully more than a couple of stars. But Of course, if that's the honest review. Yes, we search for authenticity. Well, Florence, thank you so much. This was wonderful. So many helpful pointers as far as your approach, your mindset, some of the specific skills. It's been a really wonderful uh, discussion today. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you to you. And uh, thanks for bearing with my English too. (laughs) I hope I I was understandable. Yeah, we both have to nod to your courage and coming on, recognizing English is in your first language. And so thank you for that. And we hope that we were supportive for you and because we both really valued what it was you contributed today. And I have no doubt that there are many people in the audience who will have come away with a much broader and useful understanding of what it is to be working with someone with a borderline personality disorder. And as a consequence of that, we can hope now that there are individuals out there who will get better care as a consequence of having had a chance to listen to your experience and sharing your wisdom. So thank you for that. My pleasure. Bye-bye, Florence and Glenn. Until next time. Indeed. When you need me, 
mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.